Our reading this evening can be found on page 1192 in the Bibles in Church. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 3. It'll be on the screens, but it'll be great if you can follow in the Bibles and keep them open. 1 Timothy 3. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in in the world, was taken up in glory. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Demetrio. I'm the youth minister here at Bishop Harrington Church. And I want to tell you about um, Project Japan. Have you heard of Project Japan before? Fascinating, right? In 1980, the Norwegians had, were farming so much like salmon, too much salmon, and they didn't quite know what to do with all this salmon they had, right? They, they were exporting it, but, but, but like, there was just too much. And so they started targeting nations that kind of weren't eating much of their Norwegian salmon. Japan was on their radar, because at this time, this may shock you, but Japanese cuisine did not have much salmon in it. I know. 
I know, because, because to them, salmon was like the wrong color, the wrong shape, the wrong smell. Ugh. And, and the salmon that, 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 that was around um, Japan, the Pacific Ocean salmon, that had parasites in, so you couldn't have it raw in sushi, so they like, kind of boiled it to death. So the Norwegians came up with Project Japan, led by Bjorn um, Elric Olsen, the most Norwegian person you can find. He, he, he set his sights on Japan, transforming their vision of salmon. That was his plan. So he went over there. And rather than going to like, the big retailers, he went to the chefs, to the TV personalities, the influencers of their day. The Iron Chef himself was his first target. And kind of, he'd shown them these, these videos of, of Norwegian pure fjordic water. He'd show them like, the, the, the leaping salmon, how beautiful it looked. He'd carve little slices of salmon for them to try and sample. Did his plan work? Well, in 1980, uh, Norway sold two tons of salmon to Japan. 2016, they sold 34,000 tons of salmon to Japan. And you go to any Brighton sushi restaurant, and what's it got on the menu? Like, salmon is there, it's all over the place. Project Japan transforming a whole nation's view of a, of a fish. Wow. And you may be thinking, what on earth is he on about? Well, I think chapter 3 of 1 Timothy is kind of Paul's project church. He's trying to transform Timothy and the people who are reading over his shoulder, their opinion of church and church leadership. Because the church is an absolute mess, isn't it? We've been seeing that over the last couple of weeks. There are people kind of teaching things that aren't true in the Bible, like dodgy doctrines. There's people turning up to prayer meetings looking for a fight we heard last week. Women dressing provocatively, taking attention away from the Lord and to them. Like, it's an absolute shambles. No wonder Paul needs to launch Project Church. Um, and kind of chapter two was all about like church members and saying like the character of church members really matters. On chapter three, he starts by saying the character of church leaders, that really matters. And he ends 14 and 16 talking about the character of the church itself, how that really matters. And actually, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in verses 14 to 16 in chapter 3. So get your Bibles back open if you've lost them. Um, it's fantastic, this part. And Paul's kind of argument here, his main thing is saying the character of the church really, really matters. And he does it by showing us two beautiful pictures of the church. So verse 14, he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. I love Paul's affection for Timothy. He's like, oh, I want to come and see you, brother. I can't wait to be with you. But if I'm not there, hey, this is what this is all about. And that first picture is that the church is God's household. I built a replica here. Look at this. Wow. My DIY skills. I'll leave it here. There it is. The church is kind of God's household. It's, actually, isn't that a stunning thought? That the living God Almighty, the one we saw this morning who is terrifying and frightening, he lives in us, in his gathered people. He chooses to live in That's mind-blowing, isn't it? We're God's household. And that kind of means, well, it's that family tied into it as well. Like, that's why so much of the New Testament talks about believers as being family. It's a really big deal. 
And actually, verse 15, he says, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. God's household. It's kind of got those house rules to it, you know? You know you walk into some houses and they've got that kind of, um, that sign that says, in this house. So, in this house, internet is a privilege, not a right. In this house, we don't feed the seagulls. That should be a, 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 in every single house in the whole of the world. Um, but, but in the third one, like in this house, we close the toilet seat lid down. You know, but, but that house rules. And because you're in that house, you respect the rules, don't you? You, kind of, you, get a, you, you respect the authority that's over you. Well, the church, the gathering of God's people, it's God's house. Like, there is a right and honorable and glorifying way for us to conduct ourselves and live and act. Um, the character of church really matters. And in fact, if it's his house as well, that sort of means that what he says goes. That it's about his preferences and not mine. That church is not about Stephen songs and Stephen worship style, but about God. The character of church really matters because we're God's household. That's a stunning thought that as we gather together, it's special. That's kind of the first picture. The second picture Paul moves on to, verse 15, he says, um, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. He moves from the picture of a house to kind of one of those massive Greek-Roman buildings with those, with those humongous columns holding it up. So like, like the church, is like a big pillar holding the roof of truth up. Um, it's an amazing picture. And I think what he's getting at, well, I'm going to use a slightly different analogy to try and paint the picture. Here it is. Oh, this is very heavy. This is my pedestal, right? Sparkly diamond. There you go. Can you can you see that on top of the pedestal? Right, the, the, the pedestal like, like means that you can see the sparkly diamond from really far away. That you can like look at it and see it. It displays it for everyone to see. And I think that's what Paul's kind of getting at with this idea of the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth. That the, the, the church displays the truth and shows it off to the world. And actually, then think about what happens when that pillar is kind of cracked and, and broken. And oh, I won't break this pillar because it's very nice. There we go. Can you see the diamond? No. no like, like, like the truth of the diamond is still as sparkly and beautiful as ever, but, but, but it's no longer visible, is it? And in fact, now it's kind of rolling around in the dirt like... like covered by rubble, so it looks a bit less appealing. I think that's what happens when a church doesn't do what it's supposed to be doing. The church is that pillar and foundation of the truth, so kind of like the character of church really, really matters. But, but what, what is this truth we're supposed to display? Well, that's in verse 16, isn't it? So verse 16, Paul kind of starts quoting this potentially ancient hymn, but he says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He kind of says, look, the way for someone to become right with God, the way for someone to become godly is a beautiful thing. He says it's like this. God appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. 
You're like, wow, that's amazing. Tells us what God's done and, and like the right response to him. But you look a bit closer and you see that it's similar themes to what we've been seeing all through 1 Timothy. Line 1, line 3, line 5 kind of all talks about the invisible God appearing. God being present. And then lines 2, lines 4, lines 6 are kind of all about the living God being raised, being glorified, being vindicated, being exalted so everyone can see and marvel at him. See, you kind of start piecing these things together and Paul's vision of church is stunning. The church is that pillar and foundation of the truth. The church shows the world the gospel of Jesus, that the, the Lord God Almighty has stepped into this world to come and save and rescue sinners. That's our job, to display that to the world. <laughs> I think this kind of means that, BH, we are not a small part of God's plan. We're not like a, a, a bit player. Like We're at the heart of God's plan to reach the universe like nothing else. Isn't that stunning? Like, like we have a responsibility to, to, to hold out the gospel to a needy world that is desperate. It kind of makes church and gathering together a really beautiful and important thing. And actually, um, this has kind of shaped a lot of our youth work. So KO, it's your turn to shine here. We, we have a phrase that we say in KO that helps us remember this, right? Are we ready? There's no nodding at all. Okay, this is going to go really well. KO, church is the? And KO is the? Yes, church is the main course. KO is the dessert. That's what we say at youth group because the highlight of our youth work is church. Here's where the magic happens if you want. Because it's got that stunning responsibility of showing the gospel out. What happens here is beautiful and brilliant. We want to be here and make it large and serve here. And I think also this hit me that like in the past, in other churches I've been part of, my evangelism has been a bit weird because like I'm going to invite people to events and to like courses, but not going to get them to church because I feel a bit embarrassed about it. But if church is what Paul says it is, then this is where people will meet the living God like nowhere else. Right? We want people here to taste that and see that. Like, the character of church really matters. And I think that's kind of helps explain the whole letter, doesn't it? Like, that explains why in chapter one, Paul's like, Timothy, stop people teaching dodgy doctrines. That, that, that impacts church. Chapter two, he says, like, like sort out the members in, in prayer meetings because that impacts church. Chapter five, he's like, how you care for widows, it really matters because that impacts church. Chapter six, how you use money. All this stuff starts to make sense because church has that big of a role and that beautiful standing in Paul's eyes. Character of church really matters. And actually, you think of kind of the pillar that, that's there in Ephesus, the cracked and broken pillar that's leaving the gospel truth downtrodden and pushed to the side. And I think we can do a similar damage to the gospel witness here in Hove when we kind of gossip about church members to our wider family. 
when we moan and complain and grumble about church to, to, to our mates or to our colleagues at work, when the way we're living doesn't quite match the gospel we believe. But on the flip side, man, when a church is kind of strong and healthy, the truth can sparkle for all to see in such a beautiful way. The character of church really matters. We're going to jump back to verse 1 again, um, kind of go through the rest of it now. You notice what Paul says at the start of verse 1? He says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That's talking about leadership. And he uses this phrase, a trustworthy saying. Now, those come up a few times in 1 and 2 Timothy they're kind of like getting to the heart of what the gospel is. And because of that, some people think that trustworthy saying links back to verse 15. But I'm not convinced. See, I think that trustworthy saying belongs with the leadership of the church. Because if church is that important, if the character of church really matters, then surely the character of the leaders in church really matters too, doesn't it? In fact, um, you know how dogs start to look like their owners after a, a while? Um, <laughs> look at this one. <laughs> what? It's like uncanny. This one. Hooray. <laughs> I love this guy. Look at his beard. Oh, look, that's my dog at home. Maybe, maybe, he'll start, maybe I'll stop to look like that one day. Or, or this one, Nick, for you. <laughs> Is Coco here? No, 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 Coco. Coco's going to start growing a little dog color. Um, but, but like, dogs start to look like their owners, right? Just like um, a church will start to look like its leadership. Um, it will, won't it? Uh, and in fact, Paul's been saying over and over again, he's been saying like, Timothy, get your doctrine right and living will follow. But it's one thing before that, isn't there? Get your teachers right. Doctrine will follow, then living will follow. The character of leaders really matters and is super important. And just a little kind of word. I don't think Paul here is giving us um, a picture of church leadership, a structure for us to hold on to. Like, we're not going to go into that. In fact, I think what he's doing is doing the project church kind of thing, holding up a picture of what a leader looks like, saying, Timothy, that's what to aim for. Look for that. But just a couple of terms to shout out about. First, overseer. That sort of means like a kind of leader with authority in the church, I think. And that word deacon, it's a word that means servant. In fact, 29 times it appears in the New Testament, 26 times translated servant, three times deacon. And you read this and it's hard to work out exactly what a deacon is or what they do, but I think it's people who serve to help the church leadership do their job. And we're going to focus on that, that first chunk, the, the, the church leaders, the, the big bosses, the, the overseers. And their character really matters. In fact, I love the way that Paul talks about it, verse 1. He says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Ooh, noble. That Greek word is, is kalos, and it appears a couple of other times. So like verse 7, it says the overseer must have a kalos, a good and noble reputation. Verse 13, those who have served kalosly, goodly, I think Paul's kind of saying, hey, it's a noble task for noble people, a good task for good people. And so what do those leaders look like? Well, verse 2, 
Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, kind of transparent. You can see through them. Faithful to his wife, a husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, kind of welcoming people who are outside, who are not the normal people you welcome in. Able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must not be a recent convert. You read this list and you're like, wow, that's brilliant. It sounds a bit like just ordinary godliness, doesn't it? Just kind of like, like, like your standard godliness. In fact, this is very similar to lots of Greco-Roman lists of virtues back in the day. So you're kind of left asking the question, Paul, why have you picked these? Why are you highlighting these specific things? I think he's doing it because these things are not present in the leadership in the church in Ephesus. You have leaders who are operating in the darkness and the shadows. Leaders with multiple wives. Leaders who are itching, itching for a fight with their fists and their words. Leaders who love too much to drink and who take a bit of the church money. Leaders who are kind of recent converts who are promoted to that position of, pri- of power and love the power, love the authority of the position, but not the people. And Paul says, hey, the character of our leaders really matters. In fact, have a scan through this kind of list in verses like one to seven. And have a think, how different is that to kind of jobs that are out there outside the church? In fact, here's a couple, you might want to read them. This is a a job for Lego, which is very exciting if anyone wants a job for Lego, uh, and a job for Cedar, and you might not have to read it at all, but but, 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 but if you can read it, have a look and compare that to, to this. Because I think they're really different. I think, I think lots of kind of jobs outside the church, they focus on, well, competence, on qualifications, on skills, with a little bit on character. But you look at the overseer. <laughs> well, it's mostly character. In fact, 12 out of the 13 things mentioned here about character and relationship with one about competence and skill. Paul's point is character trumps competence and charisma and gifting like a godly person is first and foremost. In fact, you read it and you're like, isn't this kind of sound doctrine with skin on? Like sound doctrine in the flesh that you can see somebody's living it out authentically. That's what really matters. It's a beautiful high bar of leadership. Characters of leaders really, really matters. Because inauthentic leadership, it really, really stinks, doesn't it? You only look, look at COVID times when we were all kind of told to stay at home, isolate, bubble up, and then reports come out of, of governmental parties, of visits to go and see secret girlfriends and trips to holiday homes. It's horrible, isn't it? You lose reputation, lose respectability, kind of lose any authority that you had. And then you think about the church. It shouldn't be this way, but in some small way, the reputation of the church is tied to the reputation of its leaders, which is one of the reasons why these kind of 
scandals we're hearing about in the news are so damaging. It's horrible, isn't it? One, because real people are, are really hurting for leaders who are supposed to shepherd and care for them. But two, it's having a massive impact on the gospel too. The character of our leaders really matters. And I think well, it makes me really grateful for who we've got here. I don't know about you, but um, I'm going to embarrass people, but, but, but like Nick and Ben, um, Jeff and Don and Nigel now, like we have some incredibly gifted and wonderful leaders who are godly men. And it reminds me to be praying for them. Because you notice how many times Satan, the devil, appears in these verses. It comes up quite, it comes up quite a lot, doesn't he, actually? There in verse 6, there in verse 7. And actually, I think that's because the devil has a perverse fascination with leadership. And he knows if he can take down leaders, that will have rippling impacts across the whole church. So I thought we'd do something a bit strange. Like, we'll come back to the sermon in a minute. But um, I thought we'd just pause for a minute and pray for our leaders, to, to, to pray for, for Nick and for Ben, for, for, for Nigel and Don particularly, and Jeff as well. But, but pray for their characters. We're going to have one minute where we'll be praying on our own for those leaders we have here at BH. Um, because it's really important. Yeah, let's pray for them. Father, thank you for leaders we have here at BH. We are so grateful for the godly leadership they, they, they show us. And we pray for them, that you'll protect them from the devil's attacks and help them to keep on growing in godliness and maturity. Amen. Because actually, this is quite important. Paul's not expecting perfection from our leaders. Um, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Timothy, hey, live in a way that, so that everyone will see your progress. He expects leaders to be progressing and kind of growing in godliness. M- mature, not perfect. Um, but there's two other things I want, I want to just pull out about leadership. Check out verse 2. The only skill needed, the only competent thing is leaders to be able to teach. That's really important. Like the primary way our leaders lead us is, is through the teaching of God's word. Um, if they're sound doctrine with skin on, then kind of like, like, like that shows in how they live, but, but their words match up to their lives too. Like teaching's a really important thing. And then also, the other thing that jumps out to me is verse four. It says, um, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And I think... And this is Paul bringing back this idea that church is God's household. Um, oh, it's over here. Beautiful. Wow. What a picture. Um, what happens in the small house impacts the big house. Right? So, so what happens at home has an impact on God's household. And 
That's not just true for vicars, by the way. That's true for every single one of us. But Because um, you can bluff in public, can't you? You can kind of put on a mask and live a different life. But, but at home, that's where your true character comes out. And so Paul says, like, actually, a leader's first calling, first priority is to minister well to, his, to, to their family, to be a, a godly husband, a, a godly father. That's vital. And so as a church, I think that means we have a responsibility to release our leaders to do two things. To release our leaders to love their family and minister their family well. Give them time and space with family. That's super important. And two, to give them time and space to teach. To kind of um, put effort and time into sermons and, um, and preach and teach us because that's, that's how they lead the church. The character of our leaders really matters. And by the way, if this is a list of godliness, then this is for all of us too, isn't it? Like, this isn't just for leaders. This is for every single one of us Christians to, to live in a manner like this. And so maybe this week, take 1 Timothy 3 and kind of compare your life to it and see where the pitfalls are and ask for God's help to, to progress and grow in that holiness and godliness. Yeah. The character of leaders really matters. Because if we're going to become like them... We want leaders to become more like Christ, right? Because you look at this list and you're like, man, Jesus is the ultimate overseer, the ultimate deacon, isn't he? You look through the Gospels and you see him faithful to his wife, the church, all the way to death. We serve a Lord who is self-controlled, who holds back while people are spitting on him and beating him with rods, who doesn't lash out. We have a Lord who loves his household and welcomes into his family, welcomes outsiders in. We serve a Lord who is the ultimate deacon, the ultimate servant, who lays down his life for his flock. What an example of leadership. That's who all of us are looking to grow more like. The character of leaders really matters. And it really matters because of that first thing we said, that the character of the church really matters. So I want to end with those words from the end of 1 Timothy 3 as a stunning picture of our church to lead us out. Paul says this. Um, the church is God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. God appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, and was taken up in glory. What a vision. Amen.